1: Well, this summer we are uh, looking at a particular set of psalms during our sermon series. You know, the psalms, uh, each of them, uh, really throughout the entire Psalter, we see a a lot of imagery uh, that is applied to Israel's kings, that these were many of them written by David, written by one of the great kings of Israel, their greatest king, and many of them uh, talk about the royal vocation, uh, the king and his kingdom in Israel. It's no coincidence that many of the Psalms, uh, the New Testament writers apply more Psalms to Jesus uh, than almost any other genre of literature in the Old Testament. One of my Old Testament professors, a man named Bruce Waltke, uh, liked to say that the Psalter uh, in Israel uh, was like royal robes. These poems, these songs were like royal robes that didn't quite fit any of Israel's kings. They were too big, too heavy, too glorious. And when Jesus comes on the scene, the New Testament writers finally see the one that the robes fit. And so one by one, they lay these robes on Jesus to show us how he is the king of our longing. And so uh, this summer, we are looking at the Psalms that are applied to Jesus in the New Testament, uh, a group of Psalms often called the Messianic Psalms. And so this morning, we're looking at Psalm 8. Uh, If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word?
0: Our reading today is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love.
1: What is man that you are mindful of him? That's the question at the center uh, of Psalm 8 the question of our place in the universe, where we so often feel so small and insignificant and wonder does God see us? Does he know us? Does he care? About us, what are men and women uh, in this world, and what are we to God? In the summer of 2005, the London Zoo uh, posted a sign in front of their newest exhibit reading, Warning Humans in Their Natural Environment. Uh, the exhibit featured eight people, Homo sapiens, uh, that were selected uh, by a lottery, who were placed in an enclosure alongside the other animals at the zoo. There were eight of them in there. They spent their time sunning on a rock, playing board games, waving to spectators, even eating pizza. A signboard out front informed visitors about the species' diet, habitat, worldwide distribution, and threats. A representative of the zoo, uh, Polly Willis, says that the goal of the exhibit was to downplay the uniqueness of human beings as a species. Quote, Seeing people in a different environment among other animals, she says, teaches members of the public that the human is just another primate. Tom Mahoney, one of the lucky uh, animals on display, said this. A lot of people think that humans are above the other animals. When they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds them that we're not that special. Gee, thanks. Most of us don't need reminding that we're not all that special. (laughs) Uh, Most of us uh, deep down wonder if we are special, right? If there is truly anything unique uh, about us as human creatures of God, we all, if we're honest in moments, have asked this question of the psalmist. When we contemplate the vastness of the universe and the incredible diversity of life on earth, we've asked, what is man or woman that you are mindful of us? This is the paradox of human existence. We know our creatureliness. Right? We know that in a way the London Zoo is right. Right? There are parts of us that are very much reminders that we are like animals. We're born, we grow, we feel appetites, we we're governed by those appetites at times, we get sick, we die. We know what it is to feel that we are like the animals. Right? You don't have to have a, a master's in evolutionary biology when you're at the zoo to look at a monkey and go, oh, that kind of looks like me a little bit. Right? We know and we feel our creatureliness. And yet we also know in a way that no other creature does, a hunger for transcendence. Right? A yearning for something beyond our physical appetites, a yearning for God himself. And so that is humanity, that we live as creatures, bodily, physical beings, one with the rest of creation, and yet we feel pulled towards God. We feel a hunger and a nostalgia for the God who made us, a longing that God might be mindful of us, a desire to know that we are more than a lizard or a monkey, that we somehow matter more to God. Than those creatures. And this is exactly what David is wrestling with here the question that he leads us to consider. In this psalm, uh, the thing that I love about this psalm, it's absolutely beautiful in the way that it's, con- that it's constructed, because it shows humanity in the middle of creation between God and the rest of creation. If you notice, it begins with this, this story of God's majesty. God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You created all things. It goes through his creation. And then it ends, doesn't it, with the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. So you have God on top. You have creation below. And in between, you have, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him just a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Right, this shows humanity's position in the created world is literally in the center of the universe. Right, Not in an egotistical or arrogant way, but God placed humanity at the center of his universe, a mediator between God and heaven and the rest of the creation below. We were made to commune with God and to cultivate his creation, as we're going to see as we look, uh, to represent him to the rest of the creation. Psalm 8 draws much of its imagery and much of its language from the first chapters of Genesis. Right When you, when you hear him talking about the Creator, Yahweh, the God who creates, you see him talking about humanity crowned with, with dignity and dominion and rule. This is him drawing on the language of the first chapters of Genesis. Those early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, really do serve as the introduction and uh, setting the stage for the rest of the biblical story. right? In those early chapters of Genesis, we get introduced to the major players that are going to populate the rest of creation's story. God, the creator. Adam and Eve, man and woman. Uh, his beloved. Satan, the tempter. A world created and crafted in love and in power, but fallen and broken in sin. Right, This sets the stage for the rest of the story. And it's that language that David draws on here. His worldview, his view of the world, was shaped by those early cha- chapters of Genesis. And ours should be as well. That tells us who we are and what kind of world that we live in. And yet, uh, those chapters don't always answer our questions about the world in precisely the same way that contemporary Christians wish they did, right? We bring our own sets of questions to the creation account, right? We bring questions about, well, what, is there information in here about the Big Bang, right? Is there information in here about evolution and the diversity of species on the earth and how long it all took and how God did it? But interestingly, the, crea- the, the questions that are answered Uh, in that creation account are not always the questions that we bring to it, right? Moses wasn't wrestling with the author of Genesis, wasn't wrestling with the same questions that we are in the 21st century. Moses was writing and wrestling with a different set of questions. You see, Genesis was written to a group of people who were born in slavery in Egypt, who had recently been set free from their slavery through the exodus you remember those stories, the Passover and God leading his people out through the Red Sea? So this was written to a group of people redeemed by God, set free from their slavery, who were wondering, who is this God and who does he say that we are? You understand, in the world that they were born into, they were absolutely nothing. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was himself a god. Right? He believed himself to be the very image of God on earth. He was a divine being. The Egyptians underneath him were uh, sharers in some way in that divine relationship. But the Israelite slaves were no different than the donkey that pulls the cart. They were almost subhuman in the ways that the the Egyptians would have thought of them. So this was a people that was born into a situation where they had no dignity where they were told that the gods, such as they were, had placed Pharaoh over them, he had borne them into their position, as essentially tools for pyramid building. Ancient Near Eastern creation stories are all written to to essentially back up those kinds of claims. The gods create in their power, they invest their power in chieftains or kings, and everybody else just gets what's coming to them. And so then in those early chapters of Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our image, right? let's make not just Pharaoh, not just kings or queens, let's make everyday ordinary men and women, Adam and Eve. They will be made as bearers of God's image, reflecting his character, his personality, his gifts to the world. When God then tells them that they're given dominion over the world, They're given the dominion to name the animals. They're told to fill the earth and to subdue it, to cultivate it. They are placed in a position of dignity and uniqueness, beauty and wonder that for a group of people born into slavery, born into nothingness, would have empowered them, would have lifted them up, would have given them this new world where they wake up to a world that says, oh, the God who redeemed us, the God who defeated Egypt and brought us out. He's the God that placed the stars in the sky and separated the dry land and made the the animals and made the fish and made the birds and made us as his royal sons and daughters to rule in his creation. And so it's that story that David then seizes upon to answer the question, what is man, what is woman that you are mindful of us? We want to look in this story to see what he tells us about the majesty of our God, the dignity of our calling, and the fullness of our redemption. First, the majesty of our God. You notice the psalm begins and ends with the majesty of God. Verse 1 repeats again as verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If at times uh, the first chapters of Genesis don't answer all of our scientific questions of how the earth was created, they do answer with crystal clarity who created the earth, whose hand formed the universe out of absolutely nothing, who brought everything that is into being. It's God, right? This, uh, David tells us that God not only made the earth, but he made it in such a way that it testifies to who he is. He made it in such a way that it reveals something of who God is, his glory and his majesty. David talks about that experience uh, that each of us have had. When he says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Right? He articulates that experience that we have as human beings of looking out on the creation and just being blown away by its size and its beauty and its majesty. And he's saying that all of this creation speaks. It has a voice that speaks about the reality and the beauty and the majesty of the creator God. But yet David can do one more. If you look at both verses 1 and verse 9, the words that repeat here, O Lord, our Lord... Right, when you see, your, your translation of the Bible likely has the first Lord there in all caps. Right? O Lord, our Lord. You go, What's David doing here? What, is he just repeating himself? But what English translations do is they use the all caps Lord to translate God's proper name, Yahweh. The name that's revealed uh, to Israel when God appears before Moses in the burning bush and reveals himself as the God who is, uh, I am, Yahweh. And so since Yahweh is hard to pronounce in English and doesn't make sense and growing out of a tradition of not writing the divine name, we get, O Lord, O Yahweh, the, the, the God of Israel, the covenant God who reveals himself to Israel, our Lord, the great God. So what David is saying here is something that's core to how Israel thought of themselves, is this idea that the God who revealed himself to us personally in covenant is the same God who made the the heavens and the earth. That the creator God and the redeemer God are the same. And think about how amazing this is. That the God who's majestic, the God who made Mount Everest and the Atlantic Ocean, the God who made everything, is the same God who gave Moses his name. Who said, you can speak to me and pray to me and know me by name. I'm not going to just dwell far off beyond the clouds, beyond the stars, but I want to be known. I'm going to speak my name so that you can live in real relationship with me. God isn't just the transcendent other, the all-powerful God. He's also the personal and known God. (laughs) On this Trinity Sunday, it's worth noting that in light of the New Testament, the great revelation that we have in the New Testament in the Gospels, is that God, the great God, the creator God, is known to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? That the God who made all things is God the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Right? When Christians speak of God, we don't speak of a generic God. Right? We don't speak of of a higher power or of the God that's out there that made everything that all religions somehow testify to. Although it's true that, that other religions do get, uh, through God's common revelation, grasp pieces of who He is. But when Christians speak of God, we have a name for Him God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Father who loves us and who made us in love and who invites us through His Son to call Him our Abba, our Father, who calls us His sons and daughters. Jesus, the Son, who became flesh and lived his life to show us the Father, who showed us the extent of divine love on the cross. And God, the Holy Spirit, poured out on his people at Pentecost, remaking us into new creations. That's the God who made us. That's the God who made all things. That's the God who formed the heavens and the earth. And he's given us his name. He's given us permission through Jesus to call him Abba, Daddy that he wants to be known, and he's made himself known in the gospel. And so David first begins with the majesty of our God, and then he reminds us of the dignity of our calling. When he asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He answers his own question, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You know, he reminds us that though we stand and look at awe at the mountains and the sea and the beach and the beauty of creation, that all of those things pale in comparison to the beauty of humanity. Right, that When God uh, crowned humanity, he didn't finish Mount Everest and say, okay, now this is the most wonderful thing I'll ever make. He didn't craft the oceans or the, or the Milky Way galaxy and say, oh, this is the thing that's going to reveal my majesty more than anything else. No, he made man and woman and said, this is very good. The most common of your neighbors reveals God to you more fully. Uh, than the widest mountain range or the vastest ocean. God is more seen in the laughter of our children, in the kindness that we extend to one another as human beings, in the form of human beauty and dignity, than he is in anything else. The late pastor and author Eugene Peterson uh, tells a wonderful story. He was a seminary professor uh, at the time at Regent uh, College in Vancouver. And he tells the story of one of his students. He says, several years ago, one of my students who lived some distance away and rode a crowded bus to the college each day, said to his wife as he went out the door one morning, today I'm just gonna go out and immerse myself in God's creation. The next day, his parting words were the same and on the third day, she called him back and said, don't you think you ought to go to class today? A couple of days walking in the woods or on the beach is okay, but don't you think enough is enough? And he said, oh, I've been going to class every day. Then what she said is all this business about immersing yourself in creation. He responded, well, I spend 40 minutes on the bus each morning and afternoon. Can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these people created, made in the image of God, created male and female. I never thought of that, she said. Peterson concludes, "'We need to embrace the people around us "'with the same delight "'as we do the hawks soaring above us "'and the violets blooming at our feet. "'Men and women, children and the elderly, "'the beautiful and the plain, "'the blind and the deaf, "'amputees and paralytics, "'the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, "'each a significant and sacred detail of nature "'of God's creation.'" God makes man and woman, and he says, this, this is the crown of my creation. This is the most beautiful work of my hands. And then he invests them with an incredible calling, right? Genesis uh, 128 is a chapter or or some verses that that theologians often will refer to as the cultural mandate. It's essentially the job description uh, that God gives to his creation. And God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's call, his, his job description that he gives to Adam and Eve, and that filters down to each one of us, is this calling to exercise dominion over his creation. Remember we said there's God in this worldview. There's God who creates. There's the creation below. And then in between, there's men and women, sons and daughters of God, kings and queens of creation, that are given the calling to make culture. What does that mean? The author Andy Crouch puts it this way. Creation is what God does, right? God is the one who makes something out of nothing. Culture is what we make out of what God's made. Right? God makes, he creates, and then he gives us a share in his created work. And so culture is what we make of the world. Right? Both intellectually, what we make of it, the way that we understand it, the way that we study it, the way that we come to name it, not just in the animals, but in its particulars. Right? So it's what we make of the world intellectually, and then it's what we make of the world physically. It's what we take God's created stuff and continue his created process. Right, so a diamond is creation. We can't make a diamond. We can try. We can't make them. So there's, so a diamond is creation. A diamond ring is culture. It's what human beings make out of it. Right? Corn and wheat, that's creation. God made them. The realization that we could cultivate these things and plant them in rows and plant them at a certain time and harvest them at a certain time and leave, leave fields fallow for a certain season... That's culture. That's what human beings make out of what God has made. Gravity is creation. It's something God made into the world. Newton's discovery of gravity. And then the entire field of physics that that opened up before us, that is culture. The dynamics of sound waves moving through the air and the dynamics of acoustics, that's creation. God made that. But Beethoven's fifth is culture. Hearing a symphony bring out the richness of what music can do is what we've made of the world. And so this is the world that we're created into. God creates and we cultivate creation in every one of our vocations. Everything God calls us to, every place he places us, is a place where we're to do the work of culture creation. Right? Even the domestic life. Right, We know that, that marriage is something God creates. We see that in the, uh, in, in, in the early chapters of Genesis. But your marriage is something that you cultivate, bringing out the created brilliance of what God gives. Life is what God creates. Your children are what he gives you. But who they grow up to be, that's part of what you cultivate. Cultivating our calling now, in creation, we were made to create good culture, right? We were called by God. We were made to live in relationship with Him. We were made to create beautiful culture, culture that continued to speak to who God is and His beauty. But of course, if you know the rest of the story in Genesis chapter three, we fall from our created vocation, right? But we don't lose the calling to make culture. It's just that now culture is a mixed bag. And often we create bad culture, we create broken culture. We take the God-given gift of authority and rule and we turn it into oppression. We turn it into bad governments and domineering leaders, right? We take God's good and created uh, gift and dignity of human sexuality and we create out of it pornography and lust and and domination, right? This happens in the earliest chapters of Genesis, right? As soon as the fall happens, Cain takes the created good of a rock and says, oh, I could use this to kill my brother, and creates bad culture. We see humanity saying all of this ingenuity and creation uh, culture building we can do, we can take it and build our way to rival God at Babel. Early on, we see culture being made in human arrogance and pride and competition. It turns out that human beings uh, have not been good kings and queens uh, over God's creation Every one of us uh, has uh, fallen following in our first parents' path. Every bit of the culture and world that we've made uh, is corrupted by sin. That's why Paul in Romans 8 will tell us that it's not just humanity that's longing for redemption. It's not just you and me, but he says the entire creation groans awaiting redemption. The whole world needs to be set right. And friends, you'll never understand the true uh, depth of our redemption or the true beauty and power of the incarnation until we recognize this role that God made the world to be ruled over by a righteous man, by righteous humanity. And so that's the next thing that we're going to look at here, the fullness of our redemption. So Adam and Eve were made uh, to rule over creation, to cultivate it and to subdue it. And they failed, and we have all failed. And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is where uh, these verses are quoted, Psalm 8 in the New Testament. Starting in verse 5, the author of Hebrews writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, that's Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Uh, And I'll also read verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It makes me feel better when I can't remember where I read a Bible verse that even the author of Hebrews uh, goes with, it's been written somewhere, right? That's that's comforting if you don't remember your Bible verses. (laughs) But you see what he's doing with these verses. He's saying, look, God made man, Adam and Eve, to be the mediator between God and his creation, and we failed miserably. So God himself took on that vocation in becoming not only true God, but also true man. Real humanity, humanity as it was created to be, in obedience to God and indwelt by the Spirit. Jesus fulfills this calling perfectly. It's to Jesus that's been crowned, it's Jesus that's been crowned with all honor, given dominion and authority over every living thing. And then he says, and we too have been brought into his glory. That he has crowned many sons and many daughters with glory. What Jesus does in becoming creation's true king, the true Adam, the true man, is he then brings us, as we come under his rule, as we come under his reign, he then gives us back our calling. He says when when your desires and your hearts were warped and bent and arrogant because of sin, you were terrible at this. You were sinful in your calling. But now that you have come under Christ, now that I'm remaking your heart, now that I'm reordering your desires, I am remaking you so that you can fulfill your true calling, so that you can go about your work of being sons and daughters and friends and husbands and wives and parents in every one of your vocational callings, whether it be uh, banking or plumbing or medicine or whatever he calls you to. You're now able to do this as someone who once again can shape the created things in the shape of God's love and towards his glory. Did you notice the strange little bit? Uh, The part that stands out is kind of out of place in this psalm for many of us is verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What David's doing here with these verses is saying God's glory. This is the same thing Paul does in his letter to the Corinthians. Is God shows his glory. Yes, he invests humanity with dignity. Yes, he restores our strength and our power and our ability to to order our lives correctly. But this verse is there to show us it's it's not your strength or your power or your dignity that God most uses to show his glory. It's your littleness and your weakness and your humility. Right, every other religion essentially says you ascend to God on your own power. Right, it's through your own moral goodness, it's through your own intellectual strength, it's through your own detachment from the world that you ascend towards God. But what the psalmist is picking up here is the same thing Jesus develops later on in the Gospels when he says, Unless you become like a little child, you can't come to me. Right, unless you, that, that God's glory here, we believe that this babies and infants is meant to stand in for all of Israel. Right? They weren't powerful like the Egyptians. They weren't as mighty as the Babylonians. Their army never had conquest like the Assyrians. But God says it's a, it's a comedic picture that he's going to defeat his enemies through an infant army, that he's going to lead a bunch of toddlers and babies into battle. And because he is so mighty, these little ones will triumph, that he will prove his praise and his worth and his might through his sons and daughters weak as we are, living our lives towards his glory. So who does God say that you are? Who are you that God is mindful of you? Does he take note of you? Well, he says, yes, he has invested in you. Tremendous dignity, an immense and important calling. But you only fulfill that calling as you embrace your own humility and weakness. As you come to God, not in your pride and goodness, but in your weakness and in your littleness as a son and daughter. There's a beautiful picture of this uh, at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you remember uh, that great book and okay movie uh, that was made after it, (laughs) Um, it ends, right? Aslan is the great Christ figure in Narnia. And it ends uh, with the children, the children of earth that go to Narnia enthroned in Narnia. In Aslan and all of the Narnians, what does he refer to them as? Royal sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Children still, but crowned and ruling as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, fulfilling what they were made to do in God's world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to live our lives In the new Adam, the one who offered up, whereas our first parent, Adam, offered disobedience and sin, and therefore caused our world to be plummeted uh, into sickness and death. Through the righteousness of the new Adam, you have brought new creation into this world. Lord, help us to live our lives, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, restored to our true calling, ruling over a new creation as ambassadors of the great King. Lord, there's times in our lives where it's really hard to believe that we matter, to believe that what we do with our lives matters, to believe that the way we spend our days matters, to believe even that we matter to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know uh, that we are who we are because of your great love for us, that the cross proves once and for all how much we matter to you, and that you restore us to a calling that really does matter in this world. Lord, help us uh, to be good stewards of the world that you've entrusted to us. Help us, Lord, to bring out all of its created goodness, to heal its brokenness. Help us in every place that you've placed us to rule righteously under you, to create good things in this world and to bring out uh, all that is beautiful of your kingdom, knowing that one day uh, your invisible reign will will become visible, and you will remake all things. In this world that was created very good, will again surpass that and be very, very, very good under the reign of our King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank
0: you for listening to our podcast you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christchurch in town please visit our website at christchurchintown.org